Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Heavy Decibel Operations. This is Keith O'Brien. I'm here with Yona Korngold and Randy Monty. And we are going to be talking about labor. Uh, this is recorded in the thick of the coronavirus pandemic. And um, I don't know if you've seen the news, but it's not a great time for labor. It's not a great time for any facet of the capitalistic society. Uh, so we're going to talk a bit about whether or not this um, indelible moment in time is going to impact the overall labor movement. I'm going to forewarn you that uh, this is not a both sides conversation. You're not going to find a lot of arguments for capital for the um, the uh, employers. This is gonna be more from the perspective of the labor that creates value for said people. But, you know, we're, we're all gonna keep an open mind. Um, but how are you doing, Yona and Randy? I'm doing, I'm doing okay. I mean, it's definitely um, a very interesting thought experiment where I'm in a thought experiment, but a real situation, obviously, where historically, yes, a, any sort of crisis, a pandemic, uh, would lead to great social change. I mean, even look at like mm. how a black plague or black death ended feudalism, like, um, and from World War One and uh, the stock market crash, how that brought brought, brought on the modern labor movement. And, Women, women working in the and going back to the workplace. Um, but so, for all those reasons, I'm. I would say, oh, this this is an opportunity for that voice to be heard. But I'm also extremely cynical in saying, <laughs> <laughs> saying it, with with our the state of 2020 politics, saying yeah, that voice might be saying something, but are people listening? And, I think you have a right to be skeptical with that, Yona, because if you look at another significant turning point in the history of labor, at least in the United States, being the civil rights movement and the post-Vietnam era, the the project of neoliberalism as an international economic system was intentionally implemented as a direct response to the advantages that labor, particularly labor of, of minority groups within the United States, was getting so there's the current economic system which has been operating for the entire you know lived experience of each one of us is was was directly implemented to stave off that sort of uh, proletariat response that you're referring to, Yona. And like how you mentioned, Keith, the idea of labor is something that we need to make clear to, to our listeners here. When we're talking about labor, where there's a broad, inclusive scope of people we're talking about here. Now, my, my wife and I both work in education and we're extremely fortunate that we're continuing to, to work for the sense of normalcy right now, but work in the sense of, you know, at least we know for the next month, you know, we're going to keep getting paid. Um, you know, we're not working in the salt mine here, but we're still part of that labor class. And we need, and if we, the, if we remove ourselves from those conversations as part of that labor class, then we're not only harming the people who don't have the privileges and the accesses that we have, but we're ultimately 
not working our own best interests either. Right. And I think that's a, an interesting way to start that by sheer numbers, the pool of people that represent labor on a just a, a again, a sheer number basis, absolutely uh, overwhelm that which is, you know, the the owners, the, you know, the executives and the only seemingly the only time that true. Well, let me ask this question. It feels like the only time that true progress is met when people that might be in different facets of quote unquote labor all come together to say, we're in this together, or we share common goals, or we need to protect ourselves vis-a-vis um, the overall system. And again, you know, you can point to, and, and Yona uh, and, and Randy have both done um, in very short time, come up with some examples where there seem to be some uh, some uh, collective uh, agreement uh, or some collective understanding. I, I vacillate between thinking that this might be a moment in time where that happens and then the pessimist comes out and says everyone's affected differently and um, while there might be some some feeling of, uh, of um, a shared uh, pain point during this time that everyone's going to come out of it at a different time and forget about whatever they might have learned while in the midst of the pandemic. So my first question, and I'll, I'll um, throw it to Randy first, is, you know, what are your what are your hopes or your thoughts about this leading to a greater, I don't know, collaboration or solidarity amongst different people in labor that might be in different industries, different fields, different income stratus, uh, status or uh, coming together and, and demanding uh, better things or demanding uh, more for especially the people that are most vulnerable, the people that have the, the least amount of voice. I appreciate that framing, Keith, to, to start. In previous episodes, we've talked about our improved attunement to the work of, of laborers in those areas of our everyday lived experiences that we might overlook the people who make sure that the places we're living in and the places we're moving in and playing in are clean and safe, that the places we're entering into are in my life experience, almost always stocked full of whatever thing we're looking for. So part of that sentiment of not just, so taking that attunement and turning that into camaraderie for the work we're doing. You mentioned earlier, Keith, that labor is outnumber the bourgeois class exponentially within this country. And I'm not sure if this is true across everywhere in the United States, but certainly in almost every single town and county in Texas, 
educators across all levels, populate the largest labor group of every single municipality. And so all these things that we're concerned about in the long term, like labor contingent healthcare, living wages, increased administrative obligations, equating capital to liberty, equating work with self-worth, surveillance. These are all intentional aspects of that neoliberal project that's designed to control the lives, the production, the physical bodies of the people doing the work, of the proletariat, of the laborers. The capital is dependent on that work. And so, again, I'm framing everything through the filter of, to mix metaphors a little bit, you know, everything through the filter of, of education. And so understanding that, you know, my work as a faculty member is necessarily hinged with the work of the support staff, is necessarily hinged with the work of the contingent faculty, is necessarily hinged with the work of the physical plant staff. And understanding that we're all working together for a certain objectives, objectives, whether it's being administering the university itself or this larger project we call society. I'm hoping that's something we come out of it. You know, when you, as you were setting that up for us, Keith, I couldn't help but think about, you know, the best predictions that happened in the United States post uh, September 11th, 2001, and the optimistic charges that the country would come out of it um, with a, a better understanding of itself, of its neighbors, of its place within the global society. And that never seemed to last as long in the day-to-day -day or in reality as it did as a sort of bumper sticker slogan hearing. Yeah. Yona, what are, what are your thoughts? I think my biggest hope is that the labor and that the voice of the the entire part part of the economy that for before two months ago uh, a lot of America didn't think a thought about whether it's uh, people grocery deliveries Uber drivers things like that now have enough leverage um, in not only in the coming election but for to make real policy change um, because if anything short of a switch going on and everyone, everything going back to normal, then those are the people that are, are going to be required to get things moving again. Um, and that should be enough leverage to start making some real change. That's my biggest hope. Um, whether that could be a unified voice or whether things could actually happen, that's where it has started with where I'm skeptical and um, but, but that is my hope. Right. So here's where my, my pessimism comes into play or comes with, 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 uh, full authority or, um, so the reality of capitalism is that, or my understanding of the reality of capitalism. And, and after I go on this little, tangent you guys can push back where you see fit is there is a maybe flexible and maybe and certainly difficult to elucidate and discuss and debate but there's 
a real uh, acceptable level of, of cost per life. And by that, I mean, the system is set up that people die, people die uh, certainly by means that with the right allocation of funds would be ameliorated, would be uh, uh, avoided. And so that's always been the case. It's come into stark focus in the past couple of weeks where you had the president of the United States who in many, many ways is a malignancy uh, on the human condition, but in uh, other ways, just a, a flashlight signed on, uh, flashlight shined on the environment in which we live. And so he and his administration on seemingly a daily basis are um, openly discussing the cost of the economy versus how many people it will kill. And it's a naked calculus that plays out daily. And so my question is, how are we, you know, are we going to learn anything from that? Or is that it, it's going to be too easy for too many people to assign a unique asteroid level event uh, diagnosis to this situation and then go back to a, a similar lifestyle. And so what, what, if anything, are we going to hold on to uh, collectively that will change anything? That's where the pessimist comes in and uh, I throw it back to Yona first. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I am definitely pessimistic in the fact that like a response to, of not only a response to the way the country sees a virus and whether they're healthy or sick, or whether the, whether the pandemic is affecting their daily life is all through a political lens. Um, mm-hmm. And which is astonishing where it's something where, yes, people obviously are in their communities are sick, maybe even themselves, but the, still even health hasn't changed the way uh, people are seeing the virus where, where, where you have, I think a few did a study where obviously more D's uh, were saying that their lives were impacted more by the by the restrictions of the virus um, in the last couple of weeks, uh, where ours were saying, "Oh, there's some change, but uh, but their lives have hasn't changed dramatically." Um, and that so that's definitely keeps my makes me extremely pessimistic. But I think <laughs> I think the question was. Uh, where, where I could see everyone coming together. And that, it, I think the longer that this goes again, like, uh, I mean, it feels like we've been in this forever, but yeah, it's been maybe, yeah, a few weeks, a month or so. I mean, we're talking about through the summer months, like where things are still going on. And that's where we see the real effect of, of what is going on and how that is changing society. Um, like there was another uh, 
number where it was saying um, people with a postgraduate degree or higher, um, 70% of them are working from home. Hmm. People with a high school diploma or lower, only 22% of them are working from home. So those sort of shifts and those sort of uh, ways that we could see what the real, what, how our society is really layered right now um, are just going to continue to exacerbate. Um, this week we, we saw how, how much the virus is really affecting certain communities, the African-American community, Latino communities, much more than uh, the rest of America. Um, so those kind of things I think are going to keep obviously becoming, coming into play and uh, being realized. So, Randy, before I, I throw it to you for your thoughts, Yona, if I could distill what I think I'm hearing from you, you if we look at your, your thoughts through an optimistic lens, the longer this goes on, the less uh, the the less likely it is for people in labor in the higher stratosphere can avoid finding the where they're they're connected or where there are similarities with the lower stratospheres of of labor. Right. Yeah. So long as this is gone, it's going to uncover the more of the inequalities that mm. um, people have been that we all that we all have been talk, been talking about, but just haven't been felt by uh, the rest of the country who, who aren't who aren't in those places. Randy, your thoughts? I'm kind of with you on that pessimism a bit, Keith. In that, <laughs> but I mean, because you could look at much of recent history within the country. The, the lack of critical media literacy that seems to permeate across almost all stratas within the United States. The, in addition to that, the sort of intense tribalism um, politically that informs what people do, uh, which I think leads into one, a few points that Yona was making in that this is the communities that are being impacted the most are demographically the ones that always tend to get impacted the worst whenever something negative happens within the United States. Um, and there's a recent article, recent post on, on Vox, which say what you want about the website, they do correlative comparative statistics fairly well. And the audience's concerns about the coronavirus and it impacting their lives right now correlates positively with support for Donald Trump and denial of climate change. And so much in the same way where because of the sort of tribalistic mentality that people have when they're approaching anything that they deem somewhat political, that you can almost sort of predict to a certain degree of certitude how people will fall according to different political issues based off of their party affiliation. Um, this seems to fall right. in line with those same trends, which is, which is unfortunate and doesn't bode well for how we're going to work through this. I think the, the current presidential administration and the sycophants and other layers of government that support them are for some audiences successfully pinning the failures of the Donald Trump administration handling 
the response to COVID-19 on previous administrations of Barack Obama and George W. Bush and whoever else they, you know, whatever other proper noun happens to pop into Donald Trump's head as he's blathering, you know, in his nightly, you know, you know, rallies in front of the TV cameras. It's never their fault. It's never the culpability of the people who control two and a half of the branches of the federal government right now. And again, I'm maybe I'm sort of enacting the same sort of, you know, identity based um, political stance that I'm sort of deriding at the same time. Um, but I'm, <laughs> I would reject any sort of claim of, of, uh, necessary equivalency across these part these groups here. Right. Well, to me, it seems that Trump has done a good enough job on presenting the coronavirus as, um, something. And, and I say this in, let me caveat that presenting meaning he's done a good communications job to his followers uh, where they can say this was a, a great unknown. And, you know, his response regardless has been shambolic, but his response to everything has been shambolic. So people that are holding out on uh, the, you know, the unfortunately sizable MAGA crowd that has um, bought into everything he's done until now. I just don't, I don't see a great awakening that other people may hope for, even as death counts rise, um, the economy shuts down. Like, you know, we could delve into a whole other podcast on whether you know, Vox Populi, um, the coronavirus helps or hurts his uh, re-election campaign. Uh, but I think it's, I think you're right in that uh, it's, that tribalism is going to force a great deal of people or prohibit a great deal of people that could start seeing a lot of similarities with others in labor that might have different political persuasions from collectively and coming I think it's together. People like us, and not to put too fine a point on it. And by us, I mean, you know, people occupying the broad economic and social statuses that we work, that we exist in to, to do that kind of work. Um, yeah, like other, you know, cons the Republican party has been fairly successful at reaching out to, to different economic classes of people and convincing them or finding that commonplace where they can sort of form a political identity around together in a way that across economic lines, they're sort of, if, if it's an either or battle, they're winning that battle against progressives, at least in the United States. Right. And so I think, I mean, ha no, I, I'm like, sorry, sorry I'm gonna say like, literally it's not like, like perhaps something we need to think about and talk about and, and plan out is what are actionable items that people like us, people like our listeners, um, 
can do to sort of promote that sort of um, that sort of group building, that sort of contingency building across different, you know, other group, other economic groups that, you know, not just our coworkers, not just our friends and how are we building that coalition? Yeah, no. And I, if I understand what you're saying correctly, again, you know, a lot of what we're talking about tonight is the various uh, stratification, the, the, hierarchy, I guess, of, uh, and hierarchy is probably not the right word, but the mm -hmm. income, um, affluency, uh, the, you know, the, the various positions we hold in a society that is prejudicial, you know, we're, we're fortunate in a lot of ways and we represent uh, a lot of power within this structure that uh, other people may not have. And we're also probably adjacent to a lot of people that have taken that status in life and decided to support prejudicial policies and prejudicial politicians and we hold a lot of power in having those conversations and putting in the work. And is that kind of what it, you're saying? It is. And to put a more specific point on it, on what I should have said my previous going on is I'm not suggesting that we need to come up with these new ideas, but rather we need to do a better job of reaching out to those people and those groups and those classes that are already doing this type of work. There are people leading right. labor movements all around us for, you know, as we've, you know, things we've spread about in preparing for this, having to do with, you know, workers within the gig economy, workers who are currently being labeled as essential employees, there are people, workers for Amazon, um, there are people who are leading protest and leading response and leading critique of their own employers. And so it's not a matter of us creating something new that doesn't exist. It, perhaps it's a matter of the rest of the labor class attaching onto the work and the interests of the people that are already doing that work. Right. So um, a question that just came up in my head or, or um, how do I put this? A statement that I feel a lot of people uh, believe and it seemingly would be stress test in this particular environment. Uh, so I'll throw it out to you guys and, and A, ask you, if you feel it's valid and then if you feel like this might be a unique environment to um for people to individually identify the flaw in the system so there's no surprise that people of certain 
classes, income levels, uh, status, you know, world uh, options vote Republican against their interest. And a reason that has always been top of my mind, and I'm, I've heard it elsewhere, and it seems to be quite popular, but I'll throw it to you guys to, to weigh in on, is that part of the reason that that occurs is they believe in this capitalistic system where someday they might be millionaires or billionaires and they don't want, they don't want to vote for a system that's going to penalize their expected or anticipated greater success. And so I throw that back to you guys. Do you, have you heard that? Do you think that that's accurate or is it just a easy explanation for a curious problem? And whether you think yes or no to that, do you think this unique moment in time might change that perspective? You and I kind of bogarted the last part of the conversation. So I'd, I'd want to defer to you first on this. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that, what I really wonder, yeah, is the framing of an issue going to take precedent over the actual policy changes. Um, like, for example, like, obviously, health in the room, healthcare, before even going into this election cycle, like, that was could be one of the, the, the key issues that was needed for uh, to, to build a coalition for disease. Um, and what Trump is genius at doing is, of course, framing issues and changing issues and making people react rough, rather than strategize and plan. Um, so I think it all comes down to specific policies. Like, I mean, right now, family sick leave, <clears throat> health insurance, the hospitals being overburdened, like those are, there's no possible way not to understand those issues right now, where before we, those issues were able to be framed in one way or another. But right now, that's a, an extremely real issue that I think most Americans can see right in front of their eyes. But whether Democrats and can make that into specific policy changes and make those make it more about the policy instead of about the image of the party, about Biden versus Trump, um, that remains to be unseen. Yeah, you're, you're hearkening back to uh, both of you, I think, the, a, a, some, a somewhat misremembered line from John Steinbeck, author of, obviously, um, works like The Grapes of Wrath that perhaps we should all be reading at this moment, if not to, to inspire us, but also to prepare us. Um, but he said that, I guess the trouble was that we didn't have any self-admitted proletarians. Everyone was a temporarily embarrassed capitalist. He wrote that, that's attributed from an article he wrote in Esquire back in 1960. But the idea that people are, are voting against their own interest, maybe on some level their economic interest, it also, you're also making me think of, of LBJ's line, or and I'm kind of paraphrasing because I don't have the words in front of me, that if you convince the lowest white man that he's better than somebody else, he won't realize that your hand's in his pocket. 
And so there, there is, there is an interest that people who vote Republican are voting for that interest might be, you know, Supreme court justice nominations. That interest might be whether they fully think through this idea or not, but continuing the dominant ideology of white supremacy within the United States. And so I, I sort of bristle at that against their own interest. So sort of idea. I mean, I, I wish more people, I wish a bunch of millionaires voted against their own interests. It'd be better than they were for the rest of us. Right. Um, yeah, that, that's actually a great point. Like, and then something I thought about a lot with the 2016 election when this argument, yeah, Democrats shock that people would vote against their own interests also could bring to light that maybe we also don't understand what people's interests right. are. Right. Yeah. So, so I guess I should have excellent points that you raise the, you know, the, the conversation is maybe slightly changed if I say yeah. financial interest and that's obviously a, a layer that's a layer upon itself, but you're absolutely right that, interests are multifaceted and um, many of them are probably subconscious and, you know, it is very clear, hopefully, that if the, you know, the left flank of the Democratic Party, if the Democratic Party holds mm-hmm. together mm-hmm. and they're able to um, continue influence, that it is uh a challenge to the white hegemony uh of of the united states and you know brings forth a more uh multicultural uh multi-dimensional society so you're you're absolutely right that that there are certainly a lot of lower income white voters that vote Republican that are exactly voting the interests that they have. And, and I know I, some area I'm trying to be politically consistent is the, you know, one person, one vote idea. And if I'm going to hold to that, then I have to allow that people are going to vote for interests that I don't, that I might not meter out as, you know, the, the determining factor for when I vote. I mean, that's just, the way society works, right. so, which goes back to the previous thing we were talking about before, right? About this coalition building across different interest groups and how necessary that is. Yeah. So I wanted to talk a little bit, or I wanted to ask you guys about, uh, this is the first podcast I think we've recorded since, uh, Bernie has suspended his campaign. And I think there's probably a, you know, a multiple episode series just on the idea of of, uh, Bernie's leading of healthcare and whether or not, um, I, I just think that there is, in my mind, no doubt that 
the the stress of the pandemic is exasperated by the lack of Medicare for all or the lack of universal health care. I do. So in theory, you could say if the more primaries happened later or things turned a different way, everyone would suddenly see that Bernie represents a, a platform that would protect the most vulnerable in um, in times of a pandemic, in the uncertain times that we're encountering and will continue to encounter. However, I think that the healthcare debate has been the most pronounced, the most visible, and I would, um, in a separate point of view, argue that on a political communications level that there has been enough voice given to the idea that Medicare for all, there's just, there's too many people in society that believe that government run healthcare will poison the well for everyone, that it won't be as, as good or efficient. And so it kind of circles back to this larger conversation we've been having about, um, I think, in times of uncertainty, of fear, of collective um, tragedy or collective um, uh, community feeling across the United States that people are perhaps more empathetic to uh, their neighbors, but at the end of the day, they are still individualistic. And uh, that's a long-winded, but I wanted to set that scene to ask you kind of a, a yes or no question if the situation was slightly, if there was a different pacing of the primaries, if Bernie did a little bit better on Super Tuesday, would he be coasting to victory? Or do you think that for whatever reason, the even with the pandemic, the the universal health care from a, um, a political messaging standpoint just still never got the traction that would have made everyone get behind it? Well, I'm gonna, if I could, if I could go first, if you don't mind, I'm going to put aside the, just for a moment, my initial response would be to do away with this staggered primary system that we have. If you'll vote on a single day. Mm -hmm. I think you should just be surprised in the street and, and asked by like, uh, what's that guy's name? <laughs> Billy Eichner. Eichner, uh, Billy on the street. Well, at least and like, that's your vote. They did that, you know, at least people in the, like, you know, the next 25 states would maybe get a chance to answer. But to answer the question, try to respond to the question you're asking, um, would people respond to it? Well, going back to what we said before about our pessimism and how people respond to these things already, I'm less optimistic in that regard. We've mentioned the 
sort of the idea of economic system as being things that are put into plan, but the current mode of governance is something that's put into plan as well. We've, we can see how people in the current presidential administration cut their teeth within the GOP working for these think tanks whose entire ethos was based around the idea that government doesn't work. And then by electing a bunch of largely from the Tea Party movement, but not exclusively, a bunch of these unqualified politicians into government office, they went and proved that their inability to governance. And so the, a large part of why the federal government is slow to respond right now and at state and county levels, there's look at Florida as a, as a large example of this, but I can't exclude Texas either where I live. It's a bunch of people who rose to power by claiming that government can't help people. And now they're proving that government can't help people because they're no good at their jobs. The, this whole idea is intertwined with the economy as well. We can't separate this from labor and we can't separate labor from individual identity either. The whole purpose of, or underlying, underpinning, undergirding purpose of capitalism, neoliberalism are these ideas that you are this individual agent working. And that is completely counter to any idea of collective or societal action. And so when, when you're successful, it's your success because of the things that you did on your own. And when you fail, you're the only one who's supposed to take culpability for that. And so as a result, this is something that Sarah Kenzior has written extensively about is people who have jobs, who have money, who have health, health care are deemed as deserving of those things. And the people who don't have them are viewed as, as less valuable as individuals, as agents within the system. But also it self-justifies, like if you don't have health insurance because you don't deserve it. And the whole idea of universal health care isn't just going against the current health care system. It's going against the entire economic and governmental structural system that most of us have only known. Yona, what do you quick got? Quick answer. Well, I say quick answer, then I pause for a Un minute. Unlike but, the guy before. <laughs> yeah. <was> a quick, <laughs> <answer>. <laughs> quick, quick and inaudible answer. Thank uh, you, Yona. What, yes. Well, like there, I saw a line today. Yeah, was uh, Bernie was always ahead of his time. And really, what was it? was like, what? Yes, three months ahead of his time, uh, to be exact. Um, and I think, obviously, the policies would have hit much more of resonance right now. But I think the issues, the campaign issues, were more than just the policies. I think uh, would have helped turn out that, I don't know, like when, when, you couldn't, when uh, the youth still didn't turn out, even though the policies all favored, like, Free college tuition, things like that. I think that that is was out of of change even post uh, pandemic, mm -hmm. or if the um, primaries were altogether one fell swoop or man on the street kind of primary. Um, so that so my uh, quick answer is I, I don't I, mean, I don't I think the policy would have uh, hit more much more resonance with people, but I don't think this turned out. Um, and it would have been enough. And I think we would still been where we were right now. Yeah, I, I suspect 
I suspect you're right. Um, there's obviously a, a lot more we could get into. Uh, labor is not, <laughs> the labor movement is not something that is easily uh, laid out in a 45 minute podcast. Um, and, you know, I, I think, I think hopefully what, I'll throw it um, back to the both of you to, to wrap things up and I'll, I'll start with myself on, you know, what you're, you're trying to keep mindful of, or, you know, to, to have at the top of your mind. Um, That's probably the same way of saying the same or two different ways of saying the same thing as this continues to impact people on different levels, though it impacts us all. And I think, Randy, you had a really smart point. And I think um, people that are uh, uniquely impacted by something, when they do feel uh, spurred into action a lot of times instead of doing the work to look how they can support the organizers the people that have been focused on this issue for a lot longer than someone who is newly thinking about how to contribute that you know it's more important to put in the work to support and to build upon the very uh well-established structures that uh, that you can provide, you know, whatever capital you have, whatever resources, and you know, I am I am trying to to more figure out how I can be a voice for the voiceless, but also for people, even people that don't realize or or haven't come to grips with the fact that it's an unjust system and that they should collaborate with the people that have put in the work. Um, So, you know, I, every day I try and remind myself that if I put in the work, I can help and I should help because it's not just about individually what I need or how my station is but that i feel i feel connected to this great population of people that are trying to make the world better for everyone and they need and deserve help and when i how i can i should devote myself to it uh what are what are you guys thinking about just as we and this podcast about labor um, yeah, I'll just, I won't lead the, I won't lead the witness. I'll, I'll let you guys chat. Uh, Yona, uh, you well, go one, first. Um, I guess thing that came to light this week was, I, I feel like this was the week of, of the mask where, where being masked, um, completely became not only acceptable, but, uh, needed. And there's a sort of, I wouldn't say sick beauty in that that what the mask represents is of course that you're not being, you're not concerned about yourself. You're concerned about what 
right. you can give to others. Um, so this was the week where that, that sort of philosophy of looking out for your fellow American more and, and doing something in action uh, to help protect other Americans came into play. Um, and I, there was some, some unity around that, that at least I felt, or at least I was that a r- random guy who kept nodding to people <laughs> with masks on. But I felt some unity with other people with that, with that aspect. I think um, along similar lines, Jan, and I, and I I'm, I'm really appreciate that you took that, that anecdote in that direction. The some of this resume with, with me is the like the my mask protects you mentality, and your mask protects me, and so that making that almost a you know. Even if it becomes sort of a rote thing that that children and people sort of think going forward, but something that I'm I'm trying to think through is allowing us the space, and not just us, but the people we're interacting with and supporting, including in our own families, the space to to just to be and to dwell a bit in the unique unique circumstances that we're in. And without revealing too much of the information, I was in a group chat with some some old friends of mine, and they were not complaining, sort of jocularly talking about sort of the stresses of 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 having to work full time from home, but also all of a sudden become homeschool teachers. And so my initial response is, my initial thinking was to ask them, does this mean you're going to now vote to support higher pay for educators because you realize how much work that actually is. But I put that aside and instead in that same chat, asked a, a friend of a mutual friend of all of all of ours on this podcast right now, in fact, um, who is, who works in secondary education, what they're doing at the home with their children. And he and I just spent, you know, a few minutes or so sort of going back and forth about how, the expectations we're having for our kids, the expectations we're having for our students, what we're doing to just let our students know, even though we're not seeing them every day, letting them know that we're supportive of them and that we're caring about them when they were thinking about them, um, but also let the parents in those when it becomes necessary of our students know that that they're doing a good job, even though they're stressing out and they're worrying about things. You know, my my wife's a, mentioned before is an elementary school teacher, so she's in contact with not only her students but their parents. You know, I teach at the college level. I don't talk to any of my students' parents, but a lot of my students are parents, and so helping them understand that I appreciate the work they're doing, not just as students, but as people to try to get through all of this. And to keep the focus on what on what it is, you know, if you're, you know, if you want to sit down, if you have a schedule with your child and they're working a certain amount of hours each day, and you're checking their work and you're helping them turn in each day, and that works for you and your child, that's fine. If that works, great. But I think more important might be the positive reinforcement that you're giving that child, the letting that child know that no matter what, that you love them and you care about them. Those are the important things. And so we're telling our stu- I'm telling my students that to make sure they're doing that with their own families. You know, the schoolwork is something that we can address later on. No one who's teaching at home right now is 
a professional teacher for their kid. Their job is to be a parent. Right. <laughs> uh, I mean, if my son learns anything during this time, I, you know, he's doing, um, he's doing classes with uh, the teachers from his school and they are, you know, it's Herculean work um, and they don't get frustrated that the kids get distracted. And I, I definitely get more frustrated than the teachers do when he just disappears <laughs> off screen. Um, but, you know, I think it's a, I think it's a valuable point that the next couple of months are going to be really difficult and really difficult for everyone. And in as much as, you know, if we end this on a positive note or a hopeful note, in as much as you may see people um, that you feel should be further along on their journey, if we do believe kind of what we've been talking about on this podcast is the righteous journey, that if they're not as far along on that journey, or if they haven't started that journey, to, you know, have grace, I guess, or pick a better word. And, you know, let's not, let's not judge too harshly people that maybe will come to an awakening later on than they should, but be hopeful and be helpful to, to contribute to that journey is kind of what I'm taking away from this conversation and while I can't uh, make, I can't disappear my pessimism. I'm trying to, to hold on to the hopeful uh, thought that increasingly people will realize that there's strength in numbers and there's a better society out there if we join together to request it and fight yeah, for it. All right, Randy, Yona, always a pleasure. Thank you so Thank much, you. and we'll talk soon. Bye, y'all.